I want to share with you, uh, it's called the Summary of Life. I got this actually from Steve Smith a couple of months ago. My apologies if I read, I asked myself, have I already read this to you guys? And I just kept thinking, I don't think I have. But it, so I, I, I don't think I have, but if I have my apologies, you're going to hear it again. Um, but for you older people like me, you probably have forgotten, so it's going to be new to you. Anyways, truths that little children have learned. Are you ready for this? Number one, no matter how hard you try, you cannot baptize cats. How many of you have ever ba- tried to baptize cats? Am I the only? There we go. All right. We've got two in the audience here. Tried to baptize cats. Yep. It does not work. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. Learn that one the hard way. If your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. Number four, you can't trust dogs to watch your food. And number five, the best place to be when you're sad is grandma's lap. All right, yeah. Great truths about growing old. All right, here we go. Number one, growing old is mandatory. Growing up is optional. Some of you say amen to that. Number two, forget the health food. I need all the preservatives I can get. (laughs) Number three, when you fall down, when you're old, when you fall down, you wonder what else you can do while you're down there. (laughs) When you're getting old, excuse me, you're getting old when you get the same sensation from a rocking chair that you once got from a roller coaster. (laughs) Oh, so true. It's frustrating when you know all the answers, but nobody bothers to ask you the questions. Don't you just hate that? Number six, time may be a great healer, but it's a lousy beautician. And then number seven, wisdom comes from age, but sometimes age just comes all by itself. Anyway, Steve, thank you. I thought those were kind of cute. You know, as you grow older, as we grow older, how many of you are refusing to grow older? Uh, Some of us are staying at 29, and we're just, that's it. Uh, As we grow older, hopefully we do grow in wisdom. That is the purpose of age. And we learn tremendous truths in God's Word and in our daily experience. There was one particular conference speaker, uh, and and as he was speaking at this conference, just tremendous um, life lessons that he had learned over the years that he was sharing. And after, or, or before the conference, or, or I should say in the, in the beginning of the conference, he had an opportunity to meet an older lady, I don't know, probably in her 40s, 50s, in a wheelchair. And she, uh, she expressed the contempt of life and, and how all of the troubles in her life had just been coming to a head, and the, the tragedy of why she was in the wheelchair, life had been unfair, and just a, a horrible, horrible story. And the, count, the, the conference speaker, Christian man, of course, was just trying to encourage her, prayed over her. To the end of the conference, another lady came up in a whale, wheelchair, and he was absolutely amazed at the similarities of their stories, how they ended up in a wheelchair, similar uh, tragic 
uh, experiences in their life. But he discovered this one very, very different thing about each of them. And that was the first lady was so bitter and the second lady could not stop smiling. And there was such joy in her life. And he had to step back and he had to say, how is it that in life, Two people can go through such similar experiences and one turns out so bitter and the other turns out with such joy in the midst of tragedy. How does that happen? Now, he was an older man. He had learned some of this before. And, of course, he realized that it is all about perspective. Perspective, that is from God's perspective. And the more that we're able to understand from God's Word His perspective, the more we're able to see through His eyes how life unfolds and then how we can respond because we serve a God who is in absolute He's in charge. He is absolute authority, absolute power. And if that's the case, then how am I supposed to respond to life situations through the lens of his truth. I've heard it said by John Maxwell, a tremendous teacher, used to be a pastor, now he speaks worldwide on leadership. He once said, attitude determines altitude. Attitude determines altitude. Now, Cole, correct me if I'm wrong, but when a a plane's attitude has nothing to do with the mindset of the pilot, but it has everything to do with When the nose, correct me if I'm wrong, when the nose of the airplane goes below the horizon, the the altitude of the airplane goes down. Is that correct? Okay. When the nose of the airplane is above the horizon, the altitude of the airplane goes up. So with regard to an, an airplane, attitude determines altitude. And I would say the very same thing for us, that our attitude will, in the end, determine our altitude. For the one lady, her bad attitude, her wrong perspective on life's circumstances, such that life dealt her, has dealt her a bad hand, God was not in the picture. And if, it wa- if he was, her attitude towards God was one of hurt and anger. The second woman, her attitude was absolutely positive because she sought to look through life. And even though she she had bad things, if you will happen to her, she chose to have a different perspective that bad, for the most part, is relative. Now, I understand life tragedies, losing a loved one, I would say that's a bad thing. But God is able to have a a positive view of that because Romans 8.28 says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that really is my main text, though I'm I'm not going to have us look at it closely. It's going to be seen throughout the sermon tonight because we're going to need to ask some hard questions in view of that text. All things work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to his purpose. So can I ask you? This attitude determines altitude. How does this play out in, in your daily life? In which God is wanting to regularly display his grace 
in your life. Now remember, grace is everything that God has that we do not but desperately need. This is God's grace. This is all the power and the resources, the eternal life, everything that he has that we do not have. It is, in, it is not in and of ourselves, our ability. He has it all. We do not, but we desperately need it. That is God's grace. It. That's God's grace. When, when we fail to realize the desperate need that we are in for God's grace, that's when we miss it. I want you to think about that. We must desperately need and cry out for God's grace. I want you to turn with me to Excuse me, to John chapter 9. I'm only going to be reading the first three verses. Tremendous story. I'd love some time to be able to really dig into this. It has to do with a man born blind and that Jesus healed him, put mud on his eyes, told him to go to the pool of Siloam. He did this and he was able to see. However, the rulers of the synagogue didn't like this because Jesus healed him and he did so on the Sabbath of all days. You heal people on another day, Jesus, okay? (laughs) I mean, a miracle. So he testifies, and you can read the rest of the story, but I just want us to focus on the very beginning and the point that we can see from this. And it says, starting with verse 1, chapter 9 of John, he says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man... Or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I mean, how many of us ask the great why question? God, why have you allowed this in my life? And and our first... Gut responses, what did I do that was so bad to deserve this? Are you following me? Is that not usually the first question? Now, don't get me wrong here. There are times in which we dig the hole and we fall into it and we get angry with God because we fell into the very hole we dug. I mean... And God does bring discipline to his people, but that tends to be our default response to the question, why? Why, God? Why did you allow this bad thing to happen in my life? To me, God, this is to me. And Jesus says it is in this situation. Now, he's not saying in all situations. In this situation, it has nothing to do with their sin. Now, when it says uh, that, let me just read it. Correctly, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Can I just assure you that, yes, indeed, that they sinned, but Jesus' point is not that they have never sinned, because Jesus is the only one who is ever sinless. His point is that it is not because that they sinned that this has happened. It is for one reason, and it is so that the, so that the power of God, the work of God, might be displayed in his life. Now, I'm going to ask you to think of your situation, your bad thing in life, and no, maybe it wasn't because you were born blind. As a matter of fact, I'm not aware of anyone in this room that was born blind. I'm not aware of anyone in this room that is blind at this point. 
I mean, I might be going blind, but I'm not there yet. Our bad situations are very similar to this person's life. This, it, it, we don't know how old this young man is, but he's a young man. He's able to answer for himself. I'm going to guess maybe in around 20 years old. He could be younger, could be older. But let's say 20 years old. For 20 years, he has endured his blindness. How many of you have had a very difficult situation, you don't have to raise your hand, for 20 years? There, there are probably some of us here. Can I ask you this? Have you ever prayed for that bad situation? That's honestly a really silly question. Of course you have. Would you not think it logical that this man, even his parents, would pray, God, if there's just some way that you could heal my son or make his life better, and and they, they prayed for the blindness of their son, and for 20 years, no answer. No answer. It reminds me of the, the cripple in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John went to the temple to pray at 3 in the afternoon. They find a man at the gate, beautiful, <coughs> and, <coughs> excuse me, and he's begging and he's holding out his, his palm to receive something. And, and Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I, got, what I have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And the man, he, they, he held out his hand. The man grasped his hand and he held him up. And Jesus healed the ankles of this man. Strength was restored. He had been born crippled. And later in the next chapter, we find out that he was over 40 years old. So it wasn't just 20. This man was born crippled and he was over 40 years of age. 40 years praying. Forty years dealing with his bad circumstances. Forty years of unanswered prayer. Why was it that he was born crippled? Why was this man born blind? Now, I'm, I'm going to venture to say that <clears throat> it is more than the answer Jesus gave here. But Jesus is cutting right to the chase. And he is saying so that the power, the work of God would be displayed in his life. Now, I say more because (coughs) to some degree, these bad situations form us. They shape us. And for some of us, that is the only reason why they are there. For other situations, there's, there's so many reasons. The why question could probably have a dozen, maybe even as many as a hundred reasons that you will find out when you get to heaven. And I say find out when you get to heaven because God rarely shares all of the reasons with us. But they're there. And sometimes all we, the only thing that we can do is just trust him that, they are, that he is taking this thing and he will use it for his glory. This man, he was born blind. It was for the display of God's power, of God's grace, of everything that God has that we do not but desperately need. Would you not say that this man desperately, desperately needed God's grace in his life? Now, backing up, since we were in a series of purchased with purpose, that God's purpose in your life is to display His grace. 
that there are many times in which God will purposely bring us to a point where we desperately need Him. Because He wants to display His grace. Go over to chapter, excuse me, um, Acts chapter 16. We see here in Acts chapter 16 <clears throat> a display of God's grace. Again, I will say it. Our lives, from beginning to end, <clears throat> from, from birth in Christ to the time that we pass away or Jesus comes again and we stand before Him in glory, our lives are a display of His grace. Intentionally, not accidentally. God truly works all things together for our good because we love Him. And He's called us. Romans 8.28 are you there with me in <clears throat> Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 22? Now here Paul is in Philippi. <clears throat> there's, been a <clears throat> there's been a woman who has a, what the, what the scripture calls a python spirit, which would be a spirit of divination. Comes from, the background would be the, the oracle of Delphi. <clears throat> And they would have a python spirit. That's what they named it. And it would be, they, they felt that they were able to predict the future. This woman truly has a spirit, an unclean or an evil spirit. It is not just Luke writing from his, some superstitious background. This is truth. There is a demon in this woman and by the power of that demon, she was able to predict in some measure the future. And I'm going to say in some measure, because Satan is not omniscient. He truly does not know the future. And so the demon, though he has a perspective vastly different than ours, he, he is able to in some measure... Now, I'm not even going to get into the specifics of that. Predict the future. And he turns, Paul turns around, and he casts the demon out of her. <clears throat> the result of which is she loses the spirit of divination. She cannot predict the future, even as poorly as she did. She can't do it anymore. The owners, she was a slave that people, the owners owned her, and they were making money off of her. But they just lost their business through her. So they're upset. They, go, they take Paul, haul him into court. And it says there in verse 22 that the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Barnabas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, not the outer, but the inner cell, be able to watch them more carefully and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in. Now, 
it wasn't a flip of the light switch, understand. They, they went and they got the torches. Okay. The jailer called for lights, rushed in with the torches in hand, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. They're still there. What? He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Does that question not catch you a little odd, a strange? Where's that coming from? We'll get to that in a minute. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. An awesome testimony. God had been doing something so tremendous. We find out at the very end of the chapter that Luke himself, the author of this book, stays behind in Philippi. We're not told all the different reasons, but we have to admit, and also in view of the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians... Some pretty awesome things have happened in that place, in that city. And so, Luke stays behind. But I want you to see that God used some very difficult or a very difficult situation to be able to display His grace. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they were doing the right thing. They were doing the godly thing. They were serving God. And what does God do? God turns around and has them punished. What? Have you ever felt that you have served God so much with such a good heart? And then when something bad happens, you respond, God, I don't get it. I have sacrificed so much for you. Maybe it's in finance. God, look at this. I, I tithe regularly. As a matter of fact, I try to give beyond my tithe. And I sacrifice and I serve and I give, give, give. And what do you do for me, God? Look at my present financial situation. It's terrible. I don't get it. Why would you treat me like this? I would never treat my children like this. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's so easy for us. We get upset with God. We feel like God has abandoned us. We throw this... this Christianized temper tantrum. Do you hear me? Paul and Silas could have done that. Here it is. It's midnight. I'm going to guess that the magistrate's office closed at 5 or 6 o'clock. Or, you know, they don't work well into the night. So this, they've been five, six plus hours already. They've been beaten. They've been <coughs> stripped you know, and beaten <coughs> unjustly, mind you. Severely flogged, it says. Unjustly flogged. As we find out, I didn't read it to you, but they are, Paul is a Roman citizen. What? When you're a Roman citizen, you have to have a fair trial. He did not have a fair trial. You are not allowed to beat a Roman citizen. They did that. So when they're in jail, I'm uh, just kind of giving you the uh, 411 on this. Skipping ahead, we find out when they're going to get released. They uh, try to do it quietly, and Paul says, whoa, 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 let's back up the truck here for a moment. You want to let us go, but I'm a Roman citizen, hello, and look what you did to me. This is illegal. Do I need to spell that for you? you I'm gonna, I want him, I want the magistrates to come to me and, and escort me out. Ooh. Paul's not going to let them get away with this. 
because they, they beat him publicly and they're going to try and do it quietly so that the public doesn't know? I don't think so. Well, they, they comply with that, but they, are, they, they beat them illegally, unjustly. They're in the, the jail for at least six hours. It says by midnight, it says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners, no doubt the jailer as well, was listening to them. And at some point, you know, he, they probably were singing and praying and they, they got an understanding of the gospel, including the jailer. And for that reason, their testimony in the middle of this incredibly difficult situation. I've never been flogged. Anybody here been flogged before? Some of you have been verbally flogged. Sorry about that. But no, I'm talking about physically flogged. Nobody's been physically It is not a pleasant experience. They still do this in some parts of the world. And my understanding is that it is a horrible form of punishment. They stripped them so their backs were bare. And they just did the best they could to cut up their backs. Thank you, Steve. And so here is Paul and Silas. They've been through this severe flogging. They're in jail now for, I would say, at least over six hours. It could be much more than that. We don't know. Where's God in all of this? What has he done? Is he up there in heaven twiddling his thumbs? For six hours. I'm speaking from a human perspective. God's been connivingly planning and strategizing and and. God uses his angels, understand, so he's probably pulling his angels together and having a little power, okay, and you're going to do that, but then he's handing out these instructions, and he says, now go. And I don't believe that I'm too far from the truth as you study scripture and God's interaction with his heavenly court. God just doesn't usually, up in heaven, just, you know, snap the fingers and it's done. He usually uses his angels to bring about his will on earth. And so, no doubt, it was the angel that shook the, the place or caused the earthquake or whatever. Regardless, God is not doing nothing. God is in the process of planning and strategizing, if you will, and bringing about his perfect will because it was not by accident that Paul and Silas were beaten unjustly. But in the midst of that injustice, and, and the pain of the flogging didn't end with the last lash, understand. And as they are enduring this pain, they find it within themselves to pray. They find it within themselves to sing and worship God. And in the midst of all of this, somehow they've communicated sufficiently the gospel, or at least the need for Jesus, so that the jailer asks the question, What must I do to be saved? What an awesome testimony in the midst of difficulty. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can have such wrong attitudes. Sometimes we can feel like we have, that life has dealt us this bad hand, this bad deal, 
And we can really be upset with God. We cop an attitude, the nose of our life goes below the horizon, and trust me, we do not go up. We begin to spiral many times into depression, disillusionment, hurts. And these things are like a cauldron boiling within us, stewing. And before you know it, we have come to this place in which, according to Romans 28, was an opportunity for God to display His grace in our life and work all things together for our good. And somehow, that's not happening. Now, I'm not saying that when you see tragedy after tragedy, problem after problem, financial hiccup and bump in the road after financial bump in the road, that somehow you have blown it and it's all your fault. I'm not saying that. But I am not saying either, according to Romans 8.28, that God will always work things out for your good, regardless. Is that what you read? Is that how you read it? That no matter what you do, God is still, He is still going to work it out for your good, whether you like it or not. You're going to take your medicine and it's going to work out great. I don't see that. For those who love Him. That word love is in the present continuous action in the Greek. That may make no sense to you. That's okay. But just understand, because it's in the present tense, it doesn't mean that it happens one time. It happens day after day after day. I am in love with Jesus. This is a picture of someone who is walking with Jesus. And though like David struggles at times, God, I don't understand. I look around. I feel like my life is, is ebbing away. Where are you, God? There's no bitterness in David's heart. Read Psalm 13 and many others. There's no bitterness there. But he's saying, God, if you do not come through, your reputation is on the line. They know that I am a follower of Yahweh. And they are wondering, where is your God? And they are mocking me and they're mocking you. And I'm crying out to you, God, come through. And we know that his attitude is not one of contempt towards God because of how he ends the psalm. But I will rejoice in your salvation. That is David's heart. Yes, he has questions. But the posture of his heart is one that is submitted to God. Now, that is key here. Submitted to God. When you're going through difficulties, it is absolutely necessary that we are submitted to God. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the Humble, And if we submit to him under the, the weight of this struggle and this burden, this difficulty. And I'm not, God is not saying, well, you just need to understand what I am doing. He never asks that you understand it. He never asks that you understand it, but he does ask that you trust him and that you love him. And in this journey of loving God, all things work together for the good of those who are in this journey of love with God. They love continuously. And in this journey, as they humble themselves before God, under the weight of this oppression, this difficulty, this struggle, it could be financial, physical, it could be at work, a relationship, he humbles himself before God. I will rejoice 
in your salvation. I will not judge God. I will not point the finger. I will not be bitter towards God. I will not accuse Him falsely. But I will humble myself. And I, got, I will confess, I don't understand it, God. I don't, I don't get it. But I know that your purposes are good. That is your promise for those who love you continuously. And may I add, harbor no resentment towards God. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves under His mighty hand, He lifts us up. Romans 8.28's promise is fulfilled. We then become a display of God's grace. Just like Paul and Silas. They didn't accuse God. They didn't get in God's face and say, you know what, God, look at all we've done for you. We've risked our lives for you. And, and this, is why, this is how you treat us? Well, I don't think so. Not anymore. And walk away. They didn't do that. They prayed. They worshipped him. In the midst of, I, I cannot comprehend the pain. And they continued on this journey of this loving relationship with the God that loves them and intimately cares for them. And because of this, God used their life as a display of His grace. Do you see that? A display of His grace. I think part of the the problem in the church today is that there's too many... Spoiled children of God. Too many spoiled children of God. Especially in America. We pray. We want God to do things our way, of course, because that's, isn't that the best way, God? We want God to, when we pray, to do things like right now or yesterday, hello. We want it done right now. You know, this bad thing in my life, can you take care of this, like, right now? Don't, don't wait. And, and please don't wait 20 years, God forbid, 40. This is our attitude. Can you imagine if Job's attitude was like that? He would have falsely accused God. He would have become embittered. He struggled as it was. He was not flawless in his trial. But he refused to say, God, you are unjust and you have done wrong. He refused to say that. His counselors were no counselors at all. They falsely accused Job, if anything. And when finally God did bring good Job's way and work things together for Job's good, afterwards... It didn't happen all at once. He was blessed with ten children. No, his wife did not have dextuplets. What would ten children be at one time? That didn't happen. They probably happened one at a time. They grew up. His three daughters, seven sons, three daughters were the most beautiful in all the land. And that takes a while, okay? I mean, granted, they were probably the cutest little kids ever, all right? But we're talking about women here, and it takes time for women to grow up. And so over years and years, God was in the process of restoring to Job 
not just everything that he had, but twice as much. Blessing upon blessing, because God honored Job's heart. Because God's word is true, that he does work together all things for his good, for your good, for his glory, for those who love him. Not for those who cop the attitude, who become embittered towards God. You see, this is the tragedy of the two women in the wheelchair. The first, at least the first one. And her heart was embittered. And God opposes the proud. He does not extend His grace to them. And her life was a downward spiral, like something she just could not get out of this church. This is the prison of bitterness. And in this downward spiral, it was as if there was just no end. I don't know if she was truly a daughter of Christ. I wasn't there. I didn't ask for it. I actually read it in a book. But his question was, wow, she has a testimony of faith in Christ. But what has it availed her? She struggles day in and day out. Now, I'm not saying that as soon as you get the right attitude, God's going to come to your rescue. Everything is going to be hunky-dory great. You're going to be able to write home and say, look at what God did in my life today. Because it takes time. For Job, it was years for him to have, for God to restore to him. Years. Wealth did not come overnight. He didn't have a, suddenly have a rich uncle die and he received this wealth. But he, he built it up through hard work that God blessed. All hard work yields a profit. So he worked hard and God blessed it super abundantly. And he ended up having twice as many possessions as he did before his tragedy. The problem, I think, is as spoiled children of God, copying our attitude, we can, we can have expectations we can make declarations. You know, I'm a child of God. I have a great inheritance. I, I am a super conqueror. I'm a this. I'm a that. And when God doesn't come through the way we expect, what happens in your heart? We're let down. We're discouraged. We wonder, God, why do you love other Christians more than me? We have all of these expectations, and therefore, we expect God to do things. You know, it, it's the therefore that I'm concerned about. The things that I spoke before, I am a child of God, I have a great inheritance, I'm a super... Those are truths in God's Word. But they can set some people up with the wrong mindset. Your attitude will determine your altitude. You know, for many years, I longed to be in full-time ministry. When I was in high school, I, I just absolutely loved sharing the gospel. I, as many times a day as I could, I would share the gospel. I loved it. I could, I could do it all day, every day. I loved it, loved it. Did I tell you I loved it? I, I, I looked forward to going to school the next day. I was a, a sophomore, excuse me, a junior and senior in, in high school 
I, I looked forward to school, looked forward as I prayed for my schoolmates. I was wondering, God, who are you going to give me an opportunity to witness today? I felt like God had given me a purpose. I looked forward, man, God, one day I want to be a missionary or a Bible teacher. Or I, want to, I want to be a pastor. Or I want to be an evangelist. or I want to be in a Christian rock band. God said, eh, not on that one. Uh-uh, no. That was all about me, okay? But, but God was kind of very graciously directing me down this pathway. But man, I, I, I dreamt and ate and slept and thought about and everything in my life was full-time ministry. I wanted to marry a wife that would be the, the dreams of my life and be able to come with me. And, and God blessed me with that. But he took such a long time. I came full-time ministry just a few years ago. God had me working a job I would never thought I would work in my life. But God used that in, in ways I cannot see. There were times in which, as I was doing the paint touch-up business, I would just sit there and, and just stop for a moment. And, and I would be overwhelmed with this thought. What if I do this for the rest of my life? By the way, I'm still doing it. What if I were to do this for the rest of my life? And I'm only doing it one day a week. But what if I were to do this for the rest of my life full-time? Oh, God, please, please, lift this curse from me. That's how I viewed it. But God blessed us financially. It was, I, 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 I liked that aspect of it. But God, I would rather be doing something differently. And, and I thought, God, you know, these people that I graduated with, I mean, look how you've blessed them. What, what about me, God? Have you ever been in that situation? God, look at these people that you have blessed. Look at the happiness that they have. Look at, oh, look at the husband you gave them. Wow, I wish I could have it. Look at the wife. That, man, never complains, never argues, always is submissive, loves the husband. You just don't know what goes on inside the house, though. But it looks great. Why can't I have this? And, and we have this mindset as if God has somehow abandoned us and all of what we wanted, and he's given it to everybody else. Thanks a lot for nothing, God. And that is our mindset. And so God had to change me. He really had to change me. I want you to turn right now to 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to end here. He had to change my mindset. He had to change my heart, my perspective. And I'm going to confess to you, it took years for him to do that. And, and I'll be honest with you, as he was doing this, I, I, I felt God, no lie, God, I thought I was more mature than this. I thought I had a better handle on this. And it was more emotional, I suppose, than anything. I would pull out of it. I would, you know, and just God would fill me with His joy, and then it would be maybe a Monday morning, and then poof, I would be tanked. It was like God, here I go again. Ah, disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement. I've got to fight this, and so God showed me how to fight. But the best way was to learn to simply embrace what I viewed as a bad thing or a difficult thing, see the positives, and just submit to him and say, Okay, God, I am embracing this, and I am choosing to, as much as I can, enjoy what you have given. Enjoy what you have blessed with. And trust you that you have a purpose in this. And you know what, God, you, you never have to show me what it is. I, I never have to know exactly why you've allowed this. 
Well, God needed to because he needed to do some more work in my heart, and about the only way he could do that was to let me know. So he did show me some things that he needed to form in my life. And I'm so grateful for that. And continue to trust that he will. But are you there with me? 2 Corinthians 12. Now, I've preached on this passage before, and that's why I'm ending with it rather than spending the entire sermon on it. But Paul speaks of a very difficult situation that he has been through, praying for it three times. And I want us to look at what God's answer was in the midst of this. Verse 7, are you there? To keep me from becoming conceited, and maybe I should have added, God had blessed him with awesome revelations. He was an author of Scripture, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Miracles happened at a command in Jesus' name. People were saved. I mean, awesome. God privileged him to have revelations of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we are aware of anyway that did not receive the gospel by hearing it in, from Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry, but he received it after Jesus' earthly ministry from Jesus. I don't know how exactly that worked out. Perhaps in the, the desert of Damascus that we read about in, in Acts chapter 9. But Jesus himself spoke to him and taught him over a span of about three years. And this is how Jesus birthed him into this apostolic ministry. Amazing things that God did in his life. But to keep him humble... To keep him from becoming conceited, it says, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Let me just pause there for a moment. Some theologians have thought that this was a physical malady. I'm not going to say it wasn't. When we read in Galatians 4, he says to the Galatians, I visited you out of illness. He doesn't tell us what illness he has. He said, if you had your heart for me was so great, you would have gouged your own eyes out and given them to me. An indication that perhaps the illness affected his sight. In chapter 6 of Galatians, concluding, he says, I write this with large letters in my own hand. And Paul usually would take the pen from the scribe that he was dictating his letter to, and he would write with his own hand a salutation. Love you all. God's grace to all of you in Jesus, etc. And some would say that this was some blindness or need for reading glasses or, or something along the lines of, of his eyesight or maybe something else. And God refused to heal him because God needed this in his life to humble him. That's possible. Personally, I'm of the opinion that Paul has already shared with us with this, as King James calls it, a buffeting spirit, a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh to torment him. He's already told us what that was, that thorn was, in chapter 11. That's my take on it. That all these trials and difficulties that he went through, it, it, it refers to... <clears throat> it refers to... Um, Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times he was shipwrecked. Now understand that he wrote this probably in about 55 A.D. And it wasn't until 59 A.D. 
that Luke records the only shipwreck in Paul's ministry that we are aware of. So all three of these happened before then. Paul, therefore, experienced a minimum of four shipwrecks in his life. God, you know what? I, I thought you could take care of me a little better than this. You know, four shipwrecks. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, it's, it's rare for someone to experience one shipwreck, much less four. Hello, I am your child. I'm like a representative of all of your goodness, and this is what you do. And he didn't complain like that. But he did pray, God, would you please, what, he, he, he personally felt that a buffeting, tormenting spirit was permitted to wreak havoc in his life and pursue him. We watched the movie The Heart of the Sea the other night in Clear Play, so I don't know what it sounds like outside of Clear Play. So if you watch it without Clear Play and you come to me, Pastor Mike, I can't believe you watch. I have no clue what it sounds like without Clear Play. But in Clear Play, you... And I can share the story with you except to say after his, his boat is wrecked. And of course you know that. That's not a spoiler alert. Moby, oh, oh. Moby Dick follows him as they're drifting at sea. And, and for Paul, it's like, and, and they call him a demon at one time. This, this is Paul's demon. He keeps following him shipwreck after shipwreck and problem and struggle after struggle. God, where are you? Just take care of this demon in my life. And this is God's response to this. Three times he said, I pleaded with the Lord, pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, man, wouldn't you, it, when you are in such turmoil and God speaks, I'm going to tell you what. He probably has something very important to say. So my ears are open. And this is what he said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on saying, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. That he lists there in chapter 11. So that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ ordained weakness for Paul. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. In insults. In hardships. In persecutions. In difficulties. Church. Do you hear what he is saying? James reiterates. Consider it. Pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. The fourth shipwreck. Paul still rejoiced in his weakness, his difficulty, confessing, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When you are weak, that is when you are strong. Why? Because you become a display of God's grace in your life. That is why you are strong. I am able to do all things all by myself, Paul says. No, I'm, 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 I'm pulling your leg on that. I am able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is Paul's confession in Philippians. That's his confession here. That needs to be our confession day after day after day. Can I ask you this? And this is totally hypothetical. What would have happened 
if Joseph had copped an attitude and he took literally a nosedive. If in the course of, and I'm talking about Joseph, not Jesus' father, but Joseph in Egypt, mistreated by his brother, sold as a slave, (laughs) falsely accused, thrown into jail for two years, sitting in jail. Trust me, he was not doing nothing, but God was raising him up. He found favor because his attitude was right. He was a strong leader and he chose to have the right perspective. His attitude was up and God allowed his altitude to increase and the jailer moved him into leadership while he was in prison. God opened the door. You know the story. He became second in command in Egypt of his year and, and God blessed him. And what his brothers did for evil, what they intended for evil, he confesses in chapter 50. God turned around for good. Chapter 50, verse 20. Was you intended for evil? God intended for good. But what if, what if he copped an attitude? What if he held a grudge? What if he became bitter? Towards his brothers. So that when his brothers came. Now. For years he's been thinking about this plot of revenge. And now he has it. And they're his brothers and they're begging him. And he accuses them of being a spy. Because he's trying to teach them. I'm not going to get into the whole story. He's trying to teach them a lesson. But what if? Instead of just putting one brother in prison. He put them all in prison. And let them rot there. No, no nation of Israel. Jesus not birthed. Through the the seed of Abraham, God's promises not fulfilled. Now, as I say, totally hypothetical situation. But if Joseph had copped an attitude, the entire Old Testament would have been written differently. Feel the weight of that, please. Please. God delights purposefully placing us in weakness. When Gideon in Judges 6, 7, gathers an army of 32,000 against an army of Midianites, 130,000, I'm sure there was fear in his heart. But what else could he do? The angel had called a mighty warrior and had called him to lead a charge against the Midianites that God was actually going to be on his side and and he would experience God's favor. And he managed to gather 32,000. And Okay, God, I guess this is all that we're going to have, but if you're in this, we can do it. 32,000 against 130,000. I don't like the odds in that, but if you're on our side, all right. And God said, Awesome. But you have too many. And, and, and can you imagine? I, I'm sorry. God, wait, wait one second. It sounded like, and I'm sure I was mistaken, but you said, we have too many? No, no, no. We have too few. So where are the others? You're going to say, no, no, no. Gideon, you have too many. And he brings them through a series of two tests and whittles them down to how many church? Do you remember? 300. 300. 
That, that, that's not the one that they made the movie 300 about. Okay, that, that's a different story. The 300, because in that one they lost. 300 against 130,000. What? God, you, certainly you're making a mistake here. And his heart was filled with fear. And God is so gracious with Gideon Church. So gracious. If we had time, we would just get into all the details. I would love it. I think you would enjoy it. But God is so gentle, so gracious with him, permits him opportunities just so that his faith would be sufficient to move forward. And I'm saying this because, church, God understands your weakness. But you see, that's exactly where he wants you. In this place of weakness, vulnerability. A place in which the only way you will be able to come out on the other end victorious is with his help. I mean, 300 against 130,000. And God says, I need to do this so that none of you, Israel, will never say, it's because we were so wonderful, we were so strong, we were so good, we had such an excellent leader, we, we, me. No. It was only. By God, and may I add more from a New Testament perspective, God's grace displayed on the battle scene. And so I am telling you this, God delights in purposely, intentionally placing you in positions of weakness. All things work together for the good of those who love God, called according to his purpose. And a few verses later, he says, and you are super conquerors in Christ. Most translations say more than conquerors, but it's, it's, it's literally translated super conquerors. That is who we are. If we choose to continue in this day-to-day loving relationship with God and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He can lift us up and we become a display of His grace. And when we are weak and we are crying out to Him, God, I cannot do this. I cannot bear this weight. I need You right now. I am so weak. And then he comes through in his timing. For the blind man, maybe 20 years. The crippled man, 40. Moses, aspiring to become a deliverer at age 40, he didn't until he was 80 because he was in preparation. But at the right time, God lifted them up. At the right time, God displayed phenomenal grace in their lives. And what I'm saying to you then, church, is whatever situation you're facing today, right now, or maybe next week or next year, when you enter into that time and that moment of of utter weakness and vulnerability, you become a prime candidate as you look to God in this relationship of love with Him, for Him to display His grace and work all of these things out. For your good and His glory. Sometimes our weaknesses are only perceived weaknesses. Sometimes they're real weaknesses. And I'm just going to, I'm going to share one story with you. And I'm going to choose the one when it was, for me, it was a perceived weakness. Because God 
when you place upon yourself a perceived weakness, you will rarely venture outside of that weakness. I am an introvert by nature. That's how God wired me. I'm an introvert. My mom was, as long as I've known her, painstakingly shy. My dad, not quite so much, though. I took a little bit after my dad in some respects, in my personality, maybe a little bit more after my mom. I remember my heart around age 20, I guess I was, 1920, just wanting so much to, to do ministry and if I could earn my college, if I could earn a living, if I could earn enough money to pay my way through college, I want to do it through ministry. And God opened a door. I was going to work with teens for 20 hours a week. But the other 20, I had to get a load of this. God called this introvert to go door to door. <laughs> that is like the worst thing that you could ever throw at me, God. Why would you do that? I was petrified. I would have to knock on the door, and I've told, this, told you this story, doing follow-up on what they called the Berean Messenger, an evangelistic newsletter that they would send out. And they just wanted to know, are people round-filing it, or are they actually reading it? And if so, what were they getting from it? That was my job. And as I had opportunity, I was told to witness to them, share Christ. Now, I love sharing Christ. I've told you about that. But not in a situation like this. I was petrified. I'm going to be honest with you. It was like when I was a kid, my mom would feed me medicine. And at least now, when it says cherry flavor, it actually tastes at least a little like cherry. It didn't back then when I was growing up. That was a total facade, a total mirage. They tricked you, okay? They would say, this tastes, this is cherry flavor. And the kid would think, I want this, mom. And as soon as they would take it, they would want to spit it out. But mom would say, you spit it out, I'm going to give you twice as much. So I would try my best, and I would eventually swallow it, and it did not taste like cherry. Just saying. Okay, I felt like I was taking my cherry medicine. Okay, God, I know that you need to do so. I know you want to use me. This is so out of my comfort zone. And I struggled the entire time. It took about a, an entire summer for me to do that job. I'd go around to the, I can't remember how many thousands there were. So I'd knock on the door. I'd just pray, God, may they not be home. Please, may they not be home. Because the pastor had not asked me that if they're not home that i go back to them. So <laughs> let's just check these off. But I felt so uncomfortable. And yet I got married. I needed to support my, my wife. And Kate, uh, I, I, guess, uh, I guess Kate had just been born. Finances crunching and just, God, how are you going to provide? He opened up a door and guess what it was? Going door to door. Peace. Salesman. I am not a salesman. God, this is terrible. Why are you doing this? And I'd done it a little bit, maybe 10 hours a week for a, a few months in the summer, and then I was offered the position to be the head salesman. I just looked at him and said, man, seriously? Oh, God, please protect the business. You know, Lord, don't let me blow it. And, and he had two trucks on the road, and I felt like, Man, he's going to have two trucks on the road like forever. This isn't going to work. But you know what, God? I'm going to trust you. You're going to make a way. And so he gave me three other guys. And we managed to spin another crew off. And he went from two trucks to 16 that summer. And it was like the third or fourth largest pest control company in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, can I say Mike Denny is brilliant when it comes to business. He has practically a photographic memory. Very outgoing, personable guy. I am not in any way taking credit for this. 
but God absolutely put me in my place of weakness and vulnerability only to expose me to, to try to tell me, Mike, you can do this. You can. And after a while in doing it, I actually began to enjoy it. Now, that's hard to believe because Phoenix gets 115 to 120 degrees, but I actually began to enjoy it and doing well. And God challenged me. He said, Mike, can you just trust me? When I place you in these situations and and you're kicking and you're screaming and you're just, God, why are you doing this? And you felt, there's no other way, no other way to support my family. There's no other provision. I guess I have to do this. Can you, can you just trust me? And there are stories I can share with you in which they're not perceived weaknesses. They're literal, real weaknesses. And you've experienced them too. And when we let God work in those situations, He will and God will come through. And we become then a display, moment by moment, of His, of His grace. This is the drama of God's grace that we've been talking about. We have been purchased with purpose. To be a display of of his grace before all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms Ephesians 3 says before the angelic and demonic world we are a display of the manifold wisdom and may I add grace of God moment by moment day by day and so here's my challenge trust him church every day let him work in your heart, in these difficult situations. Allow Him to pour out His grace as you submit to Him and in that moment of weakness. Let Him show you just how strong His strength really is. Amen. Can you stand with me? Some of you are at that place today, right now, of weakness and vulnerability. You have questions. You would love to stand before God and ask Him right now. And He may give you some answers. He may not. But this He will do, that if you trust Him and you walk in this dance, if you will, in this loving relationship with Him and allow Him to... He will display His grace in your life. I promise you. Because He is always faithful to His Word. So Father, we turn to You. And we confess to You right now, we are weak. There are certain things that are happening in our life. We feel like they're out of control. We feel like we cannot control them. And, and, and we feel this element of inability. And we're just asking You. In the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this trouble, in the midst of this relational breakdown, in the midst of this worry, discouragement, would you come through? I humble myself right now under your mighty hand. You are my Lord, my Master. Reins of my life are in your hands. I do not want them. 
You are in control. God, step into my situation and show yourself mighty to me. Show yourself in my vulnerability that you are greater than my weaknesses. You are greater than any opposition that has set itself up against me that is beyond my power and beyond my strength and beyond my wisdom and beyond my financial capabilities and beyond me. And would you step in and would you today, even now, display your grace in my life? I desperately need you, God. I need all of your grace. And I need it desperately. But would you still my heart right now? And between now and when you pour out that awesome display of grace, would you give me patience as I wait, as I hope in you, as I mount up on wings as eagles, that I right now in my weakness, that I would be able to run and not grow weary, walk and not faint, that you would be my strength, you would be my hope. Forgive me for my charges against you, God. Any accusations, please, would you, would you just let them fall to the ground right now as nothing before you? You are God, there is no other. You are good. And no one compares to you. Be Lord right now. Show yourself mighty. This battle before me, would you fight it on my behalf? Would you be my strength right now? Would you give me the wisdom that I'm lacking? Would you give me the direction? Would you guide me and lead me? Like the crippled beggar, would you extend your hand and lift me up? Be my strength. Do the impossible on my behalf because I cannot. And I humbly acknowledge God whether I understand it or not, you are in control and you know best. And I confess right now in faith, you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I set my mind and my heart on that purpose. Not mine, not anything about me that is filled with me, but only that which is filled with you. And I humble myself and I say, God, please, come to my rescue.